Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Lawmakers are in a panic as they recognize that they focused on political antics as the nation careens toward its first ever debt default that could devastate America's real superpower, the strength of its economy, and the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. Against the chaotic economic, political, and budget environment as war rages in Europe and tensions rise in the Indo-Pacific, the U.S. Air Force's innovative and cerebral chief of staff, General C.Q. Brown, has been tapped by President Biden to succeed Mark Milley as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Biden has deployed 1,500 troops to the southern border as Title 42 expires. Unmanned aircraft intercepted over the Kremlin as Russia steps up attacks on Ukraine before Kiev launches its long-awaited offensive. Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos visits Washington. Washington clears the sale of MQ-9 Sky Guardian unmanned aircraft to Taiwan and a possible peace deal between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Joining us Joining us today to review all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Hurston of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast that is a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. Let's dive right into this. Uh, Michael, lawmakers are suddenly uh, panicking or maybe not so suddenly panicking. We discussed this issue uh, have been discussing this issue now for many months, actually, about a possible debt dis- uh, default. Uh, they're now realizing that they're on the brink and they they don't have a lot of runway left. Where do we stand? And I then want to go around the table, not just about the defense spending implications of this, which I think are very short-sighted, but actually the strategic national security implications of a U.S. debt default. Because I think that people are thinking like what it means for defense spending and they're sort of missing the plot. Go ahead, Michael. Well, as you pointed out in your introduction, there's been too much time uh, playing politics. And I've pointed out you know, on previous podcasts, especially I feel that Senator Schumer needs to take action in the Senate instead of keep talking about winning and playing politics. And that's really how he started out the week. He sent a letter uh, to his colleagues in, in the Senate, um, you know, renaming uh, the uh, Republicans bill that, that passed the House, the Limit Save Grow Act, as the uh, Republicans Default on America Act. And said in his letter that you know not a single committee of jurisdiction held a hearing in the House or a markup, uh, so we're going to pretty much do that in the Senate. We're going to hold hearings and expose the truth of this reckless legislation. Well, all right, but that's not getting us any closer to where we need to be. Uh, and you know, as we pointed out last week, the House is the only chamber that's passed a piece of legislation. And the way it works is House passes legislation, Senate passes legislation. They reconcile the difference between the two, and they send it to the President for a signature. So the balls, you know, in their court, and, and in some respects, they've really missed the opportunity because shortly after he sent that letter out, um, uh, Secretary Yellen, in a surprise announcement, said that uh, the U.S. government could default on its debt as early as June 1st. Uh, so that sprung the president into action, and President Biden then called for a meeting uh, of the big four uh, from the House and the Senate uh, to meet with him next Tuesday in the White House to, to discuss this. Now, you know, publicly, they're still saying that they – I have no intention on negotiating, but clearly they're going to have to negotiate. And 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 Biden's getting pressure from uh, Senator Manchin uh, and former Democrat you know, Kristen Sinema uh, to negotiate. And they actually both of them have met separately uh, with McCarthy uh, to talk about this. And, you know, the timeline has been an issue. I mean, last week we felt we had more time and now this week we don't. And Moody's came out backing up that timeline. However, there are Republicans on the Hill that don't believe uh, the timeline. I mean, Senator uh, Kennedy, who's a Republican in the Senate, came out uh, yesterday saying, uh, as far as Secretary Yellen's concerned, I don't believe her. No one believes her. Um, so as that's, a result, that's actually you know, a demonstrably the... false statement. <laughs> there are people around the world who believe <laughs> Janet Yellen more than they believe <laughs> Senator Kennedy without being disrespectful. Exactly. Right. And, and, and the Moody's economists you know, back, backed her up with, with a very similar date for possible default in early June. So you know, now some of the old uh, solutions are starting to pop up again, uh, like you know, mint, having the uh, Treasury mint a coin of a trillion dollars, po- depositing that with the Federal Reserve. Yellen again has dismissed that. Uh, there's more talk of having President Biden invoke the 14th Amendment, uh, which says the validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. However, the White House dismissed that and said they will not entertain invoking the 14th Amendment. Uh, earlier this week, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who's the Democratic leader in the House, uh, talked about, mentioned that he had a secret backup plan because they 
quietly filed a shell bill that could be used to raise the debt ceiling. Uh, and they could use that to start getting signatures on a discharge petition, which we talked about earlier. The problem is, is that there's 213 Democrats. So they would need five Republicans to sign that discharge petition to begin the clock uh, running. And there's no way any Republicans are going to sign that discharge petition because they just passed their bill last week. Um, they were all unified. They're not going to start breaking them off until there's more of a sense of crisis. And a discharge petition takes, from what I can see, 37 legislative days, not days. And that, even if they started collecting signatures next week, that would take us into September. So I just don't see that as an option. Uh, so now there's talk of uh, a short-term extension on the debt ceiling, uh, anywhere from 30-day extension, or also talk of an extension to the end of September, which would coincide with, with the fiscal year. Um, I think that's a likely outcome at this point. Uh, Senator Rick Scott uh, has said that he's open to a 30-day extension, and he has been working closely with the Freedom Caucus prior to the bill in the House passing. So uh, I think that they seem to be on the same page. I was surprised to see the senior Democrat on the Budget Committee, Brendan Boyle, come out also supporting uh, a, a clean extension, but his extension would be to uh, the end of September, which I think would be disastrous because, like I've said previously, that's the mother of all fiscal cliffs because you'd be facing default uh, and a government shutdown uh, at, the, at the same time. And you know, a lot of members, I think, don't really understand the implication of a default because they do think it is a shutdown because you know there will be you know we talk about the implications for defense. I mean, mispayments uh, to defense contractors and obviously a. A, a, a very deep recession, which would benefit China. And, and, and Senator Tester, who chairs the Defense Appropriations Committee, uh, held hearings on this uh, earlier in the week and was very strong about how we need to deal with this uh, soon you know, to avoid economic collapse and, and also the impact that it would have on our defense industry. That, so, and I, I would also point out too, well, no, one go, thing, go I would point out too that, that this also has strong implications for the banking crisis that is not over yet. I mean, earlier this week, we saw First Republic Bank um, it was the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. It gets seized by regulators. And now we have two more banks, PacWest and Arizona Western, in serious trouble. Uh, and you know, if we get close to defaulting or default, interest rates will continue to go up, and that will damage these banks even more. We may continue to see more bank failures. Um, do members, uh, Michael, recognize that this is not about defense spending, that that's too narrow a way of looking at it. The dollar is the foundation of America's superpower status. It's the dollar that allows us to be an economic, diplomatic, military, and cultural superpower. It's the world's reserve currency. Buying, buying treasuries and American debt is a blue chip move, right? And collapsing the dollar merely plays into China and Russia's hands because they've been trying to create a dollar alternative for a long time. I mean, good grief. Do, do folks understand what it is that they're actually screwing with here or, or failing to address? Because it's actually tectonic and comes at a really bad time. And I want to go around the horn to see what everybody uh, thinks about that. Well, uh, that is a really good question. And I would say that there are many members in both the House and the Senate who do recognize uh, how serious this is, but there are many that don't. Uh, there are some that don't believe this and want to see what happens if there's a default. Uh, they think that the U.S. is going to be number one no, no matter what, in, not just in defense, but in every kind of field, even with, you know, when it comes to technology and the economy. I've talked to several um, senators this week, and I've been texting with some House members who are legitimately concerned about where, where this is going. And, and remember, a lot of these guys are governed by the polls. And there was a poll earlier this week that only 25% of the American public thinks this would be a bad thing if we defaulted on the debt. So uh, you've got a lot of followers and not enough leaders right now. And I think there's reason to be very concerned. Dove, uh, let me uh, bring into this uh, conversation, and then I want to go around the horn, uh, Jim, you, and uh, Patrick uh, as well, to get everybody's sort of sense uh, and and take on this. Dove, start us off, right? I mean, how much yeah. do we need to be thinking about this, and why is this a far, far bigger thing? You know, folks are like myopically thinking somehow if we boost the defense budget, if the dollar is crap and loses its status, it doesn't matter how much money we pour into this. Well, I think that's right. I think Michael pretty much summed it up. I just got back from Europe. I was speaking to a former foreign minister who basically is terrified about two things. First, what happens with this default? And secondly, what happens if Trump gets reelected? Now, given that Biden was meant to be the, the guy who brought America back, uh, and was the, the symbol of some degree of stability. If we go into default, it means that we cannot manage our own affairs. Uh, you rightly said China and Russia will be just uh, 
uh, delighted to see that the dollar is weak, especially China, um, because if the dollar weakens, then the renminbi becomes uh, the Chinese currency uh, becomes a viable option. Uh, Mr. Macron, who keeps talking about European independence, will argue that maybe it's the euro that should be the reserve currency. I mean, these things are just, there are so many implications. And, and when it comes to, to the Congress, I mean, the fact of the matter is that so many members of Congress aren't all that educated in economics, to be honest. They're not economists. I would argue and they're not very educated writ large. Well, that may well be, but they certainly don't understand what's going on here. And look, I mean, we'll be able to pay some debts. We're not going to default on everything. The question is, what will we be paying? And I think the nightmare that the Republicans just don't understand is if indeed uh, we start making choices about what to pay and not to pay, it's not going to be the things they care about that we will be paying for. Um, and so all in all, uh, it, this does go well, well beyond the issue of defense. It's going to upset key allies, both in Europe uh, and in Asia. I'm sure Patrick will tell you what, how the Japanese will react to this. Uh, and so this, this is a disaster. And oh, by the way, one other thing, if we're defaulting, what happens to all the paper? that foreigners own. Now, the Chinese own a lot of paper, but the Japanese, I believe, own more than any other foreign country. So what are we doing to them? Uh, this is just a total mess, uh, worse than any kind of CR or any other uh, sort of crisis that we've had over the last few years. And yes, it'll affect the banks as well. Mid-sized banks are in trouble. People are running away from those banks, share, selling off stocks. The stock market's going to collapse. What will that do to people's retirement holdings, for example? I'll stop here and leave it to my colleagues to add on or pile on. Um, thanks uh, very much, Dove. Jim, um, how are Europeans uh, watching this? Uh, right, Because at the end of the day, the strong dollar actually benefits everybody, even the notion of European autonomy, as much as I understand Macron uh, saying that and, and looking to augment Europe's power. And I understand that, 450 million people. Uh, but still... There are some very negative ramifications for this. The Dutch are another giant uh, debt holder. The Brits are, right? I mean, a lot of our European allies and partners are. How does this play out uh, from your standpoint? And what is it you're hearing from your European friends as we go through this dra well, you know, drama? So they they're on the one hand, they're kind of used to seeing us go through drama when it comes to the budget. I mean, you go all the way back 10, 20 years. Uh, particularly over the past 10 years during the Obama administration, sequestration and all that. So in terms of the capitals and the long-term uh, civil servants or, or foreign ministry people, people who are in the prime minister's office, you know, they've, they've seen this over time. Uh, and I think, I, I think, so on the one hand, it's not necessarily something new and shocking, but I think what it is, though, it is undermining drip, drip, drip U.S. credibility uh, that the that the U.S. that they that they have remembered from years past uh, is is not what they what, is not what they thought it was right now. Uh, the Biden idea of America's back, et cetera, that's sounding pretty hollow right now. And so, particularly with Trump now looking like he's going to be the Republican uh, candidate, there's there's a lot of uh, of worry and anxiety in European capitals. Uh, by those that uh, that are watching the U.S., uh, you know, as as part of their daily jobs. But I will say that those whose jobs are not to watch the U.S., who are on the street with shops and and seeing the American tourists and those types of things, these people will be impacted. As Dove just laid out, and Michael, they will be impacted by this as tourists suddenly dry up or other aspects of their economy is impacted by what's happening in the United States. And suddenly they're going to look on the United States as this helpless giant. So I think what this really does, it undermines our credibility in a deeper fashion than our than in the past, these past political problems we've had on the Hill with a budget and other things, you know, the elites might have seen that in Europe. But now with this and the economic implications from this, it'll be the, the, the man and woman in the street uh, in Europe who are going to see this and begin to wonder about this great American ally uh, that they thought was in their corner and was going to be protecting them. We're going to be we're going to look pretty weak, I think, in a few months. 
as uh, as this thing unravels and they begin to feel it in the street in Europe. Uh, the, the United States is a model for the world. And whenever we start to do stupid things and divisive things, uh, it has a way of infecting, unfortunately, uh, the rest of the world. When we behave well and we're a model, it, it serves our interests. It serves everybody's uh, interest as that model. And just to go to Michael's point, right, Washington Post ABC poll uh, out today uh, finds that 39 percent would blame Republicans if Congress uh, in Congress if government defaults. 36% say they would blame President Biden. 16% uh, say that they would uh, blame uh, both. So it, it's not like the Democrats kind of get off on this and might be something that's actually motivating the president to resolve this uh, and ideally should motivate uh, the uh, ma uh, Senate majority leader as well. <clears throat> Patrick, how would our European allies and partners regard, how are they seeing this particular situation and what is it, if anything, they're doing to indemnify uh, themselves, because again, the Japanese hold a lot of American sovereign debt, um, and you know the Chinese do as well. But I mean, there have always been concerns about how the Chinese would would use that as a potential weapon. Kind of walk us through how uh, what members need to know from an Asia Pacific, Indo Pacific standpoint as we careen toward this crisis. You know, the administration is working overtime trying to convince all of our allies and partners to do more to ensure deterrence across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, the DNI, Avril Haines, uh, in testimony this week, talked about a trillion dollar hit to the economy if war should break out. But that's a conflict that we assume China would have to start. If this is an unforced error by the United States, not only do we compound enormous economic disruption for ourselves and for the global economy, we cripple our credibility um, and we make sure that we accelerate our decline and our allies and partners will either be really balancing with other networks partners or they'll be bandwagoning with the Chinese because this is a, a vote for the China dream if we do that. It's, it would be such a, such a tragic day. If we did this now, the good news is, uh, is that all of the Asians I'm talking to, and I'm talking to a lot this week alone, um, they don't think that's likely. They assume we will, you know, at the last minute, stop from doing something that stupid. And I hope they're right. <laughs> Very succinct uh, and uh, to uh, the point. Just quickly, all around, do we resolve this before we go over uh, the edge? And yes or no, real quick, because I want to go. We've got a lot more show to uh, 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 get to, including um, what's on CQ Brown's uh, plate uh, as he is about to be named uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, by uh, the president and, of course, Russia, Indo-Pacific uh, and more. Michael, start us off. All right. My opinion will change by the week. OK, but uh, I still think that we will not default. Um, uh, and I, even though I have several members of Congress thinking we will, I think McCarthy has showed his hand and, and the leadership team around him has said we will not default. So I am still but I But that does not mean that we will walk away from this unscathed, just like last time. Correct, because we got a downgrade that we didn't uh, live down. Dove, Jim and Patrick. Exactly. I agree. Uh, I think we won't default, but I think that this is uh, another nail in the in the coffin of American credibility. And uh, people are just going to get sick and tired of waiting for the last second to see what crazy thing we'll do or not do. But no, I don't think we'll default. Vago, I, I mean, I agree that we are hurting our reputation the longer we uh, take to stop from defaulting. But I hope and I assume we will not default. It's just a too drastic a step for uh, even opponents of uh, the other party to to take. And we, we will stop short of defaulting. And if we don't, uh, it doesn't matter what I say, because nobody will be remembering what we say on this program. <laughs> They'll be so worried about what's happening to the world as a result. Uh, that's that's right. Every, but more people will be retire, worried about their retirement savings than there will be on what was said on this program today. Uh, but hopefully uh, we can play a constructive role and I just want to tell the audience, unfortunately, we've lost Jim Townsend because uh, he had uh, to run as his schedule changed uh, a little bit uh, this morning. Just before we discuss what's got to be on CQ Brown's plate, because I think very few chairmen have come up uh, are coming aboard with as many crises to deal with. Really quickly, uh, Michael, uh, president deployed 1,500 troops uh, to the southern border because uh, Title uh, 42 uh, expired. Kind of walk us through 
what this means, how it's being received politically, because a lot of this is political messaging. Obviously, there is a crisis on the southern border. Uh, but, you know, what, walk us through where we are, what's happening and uh, what the political dimension of this is, because obviously, unfortunately, like stuff like this has a tendency of sort of overshadowing almost everything else that we uh, are, are doing. Well, I think there'll be more to talk about next week uh, when Title 42 actually expires. But um, look, you know, they can't have it both ways. Title 42 uh, was being invoked because of the COVID emergency and the COVID emergency is over. Um, and, you know, sending these 1500 troops to the border is also being overblown because these troops were at the border. They were taken off the border, from what I understand. And because of, you know, posse comitatus, these troops aren't being used in a, in a military way. They're backfilling uh, border agents and other folks so that they can do their job of doing what they can to prevent people from coming over the border illegally. So I think this is really getting overblown politically uh, by both sides. Uh, you know, on the Republican side, Biden can do nothing right. And Democrats are very upset that, that troops are being sent to the border. Uh, in, in, indeed. It's like, it's like this is when political theater gets the best of uh, everybody. Dev, let me uh, go to you. It looks like C.Q. Brown is going to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's a man widely admired for uh, the quality of his character, his intellect, uh, his focus on not necessarily on forcing change, but rather encouraging the transformation of the force almost at every level and almost everywhere you go in the Air Force, you can sort of feel that uh, accelerate change uh, or lose uh, ethos. Um, what do you think his priorities need to be as he uh, goes into uh, the job, given that Mark Milley, uh, for reasons that actually were not entirely his own, became a little bit of a political uh, lightning rod on, on both sides, even if uh, he, the man did try to do the best that he could uh, working for what was a challenging president to work for. Let's just put it that way. I think that, first of all, um, his biggest problem is just recruiting, even more than retention. Um, if you look back at uh, the Ronald Reagan survey uh, that was taken in November, it turns out that there is about 13% of people under 30 who really are ready to join the military. Um, there's a loss of trust. Uh, the military was uh, respected and, you know, the percentage was in the 70s as recently as a few years ago. Now it's below 50%. Um, and there are all kinds of reasons, but the bottom line is that people perceive it's politicized. People under 30, just under 50% think it's too woke. Just over 50% think it's too right-wing and extremist. Well, whichever side you take, the bottom line is these younger people don't see the military as uh, some kind of great career that'll give them uh, satisfaction and respect. And I think that C.Q. Brown, the first thing he's got to do is somehow get people to restore, or he should restore, uh, and his people should restore the, the country's respect, and particularly young people's respect in the military. Now, it also doesn't help that we're at full employment. Full employment tends to be around 4%. We're below that. We're uh, at 4% unemployment. Right now, we're at 3.4% unemployment. So we're at full employment. There are lots of other options for young people to uh, follow. And so uh, bottom line in all this is he's got to deal with that. Now, he also has to deal with the fact that um, he's got to reassure all his military partners that the madness that goes on in Congress and between Congress and the administration does not affect our ability to fight, does not affect our ability to work with others, uh, with our allies and partners, because that's going to be a major concern as well. Uh, another concern, I think, uh, is not getting us to focus on totally on China, as some people would say, um, because Ukraine and, and Russia are going to be a problem for some time. How do we get the resources to do all of that? That's going to be a major challenge for him. Um, so, you know, this is a guy that is forward looking. Uh, just look at the way the Air Force is moving ahead in a very serious way with incorporating drones as part of air wings, but not just uh, as support, but actually as full air wing, full participants in an air wing as if they, you know, using AI 
artificial intelligence to enable them to operate as if they were piloted. I mean, this is a guy that really is forward looking, um, but he's got to get out from under the challenges that he faces. And that's not going to be easy at all. And a word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And a reminder for our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our new Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace with JJ Gertler and me. Uh, Patrick, uh, this is a man uh, who also was the Pacific Air Force's uh, commander, has global operational experience. He was also, um, you know, served in the Middle East uh, with some uh, distinction as well. Uh, I should point out to people that he was also a military assistant uh, to the great Ron Fogelman, uh, who was chief of staff of the Air Force uh, uh, decades ago. Um, walk us through what you think he brings to the party from an Indo-Pacific standpoint. Uh, and what do you think his priorities uh, have to be? To speak to Dove's point about recruitment, I mean, I think he is an inspiring leader uh, who who is capable of reaching a broad audience uh, about uh, a military career. It, not only does he come from a, a military family, but he's you know reached the pinnacle of success uh, through his own military career and his own leadership. So he's a, he's a great example for leadership, and he needs to uh, now with this platform as chairman, if this goes through and is confirmed. Um, will really be, uh, uh, you know, pressed into action to, to try to make sure that our forces are bringing together the, the men and women that we need for uh, the decade ahead. Um, you know, Dov is right that obviously it's not just China, but the China threat uh, on day one is uh, a, a very real question that he has to help strengthen deterrence uh, from day one as chairman and every day thereafter. And uh, I note... Um, not as a laughing matter, but as a very serious matter. I mean, the Chinese uh, release of this new movie, Born to Fly, just as we're about to announce uh, the chief of staff of the Air Force as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, selection for the president, uh, is maybe no accident. I mean, you know, Born to Fly is, uh, it's being called the Top Gun, the original Top Gun movie um, from China, but with real national grievance born, you know, built into it. Um, and taking on the United States, supposedly we are uh, flying supersonic jets over their poor fishermen and oilmen, and uh, and, sh and then the Chinese bring out their uh, fourth-generation fighters and, and get run off uh, the, the sky, but then they bring in their fifth-generation fighters and, and run us out of the region. Um, <clears throat> and, um, you know, that, that's the kind of uh, nationalist grievance he's going to be facing in China, um, and it's... Uh, it's it's being um, operationalized around uh, the maritime and airspace of, of China. So uh, you think about drones. We can talk about what just what's going on with with the drones around Taiwan, flying over and encircling Taiwan right now. This is a new t Chinese tactic that they've they've sort of uh, implemented ever since the uh, Speaker Pelosi visit, um, and that's why you see Taiwan and Japan now acquiring uh, Sea Guardian MQ9B uh, uh, sort of drones. And you also saw them uh, exercised in uh, Balakatan, the, the large-scale uh, exercises in the Philippines this last uh, this last month. Um, we're we're heading toward uh, that kind of um, crisis with the Chinese. At least there's going to be an aviation naval crisis, and I think um, General Brown brings um, an understanding of exactly how to both try to avoid it and how to de-escalate if necessary, but also how to win uh, some skirmish uh, in the sense that winning uh, means uh, at least not losing and coming away without escalating into a full conflict. And I think those are the big issues he's going to be having to manage on top of everything else that uh, a chairman does. And, and it's an endless, endless array of, uh, of challenges, but he's, he's a perfect, you know, perfect leader for the job. Let me let me just uh, pull on uh, that thread. And Michael, I'm going to come to you uh, in a moment because I want to see, you know, uh, Tommy Tuberville still has a hold on military promotions that's clogging the entire system. Uh, we had seven uh, living uh, former defense secretaries right uh, to uh, the uh, Senate majority leader and the minority leader calling on them 
to resolve this problem. Patrick, you participate also in um, an extraordinary number of war games. Most of the war games that I have had the um, honor of participating in are actually looking at finding and winning a conflict with China over Taiwan. Almost none of them are actually about managing a smaller skirmish, a fishing boat incident or whatever from escalating into a broader uh, conflict. Are we spending enough time and leadership bandwidth on how to deal with and de-escalate situations like this or, 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 or manage and handle them in a way that does not uh, end up in, you know, God forbid, a nuclear exchange, not to put too fine a point on it? You know, exercises and and war games and tabletop exercises, all of these uh, do take enormous uh, resources and especially time. And if you're dealing with the the appropriate operators and senior officials, taking their time means they're, they're, there's an opportunity cost. Um, taking my time is maybe less important, but, um, you know, so it's, it's a real challenge to decide what we're going to do. I was just with the Japanese senior leaders, former defense ministers here for the Golden Week uh, visit to the United States, and they've been talking with the uh, Secretary of Defense and other officials all about what they'd like to see in terms of uh, exercises involving Japan in the region, um, especially dealing with China. And they're very interested in the gray zone. I think the United States lately has been trying to push up the level of escalation <clears throat> in some of these war games to try to, uh, to to run the operations research analysis and see, you know, do we have uh, the assets? And the short answer is no. Or do we have the right assets? And the short answer is probably not, um, given given the trend lines of what China is deploying in the air, on the sea, in terms of missiles, uh, in terms of cyber and space capabilities. And I think, therefore, they've been pushing it to a very high level. But you're right. Uh, it is the lower level uh, incidents that were more that are more probable. But, um, you know, understandably, they're 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 trying to hedge on the most extreme worst case scenarios because uh, they would be catastrophic. So that's why there's a bias built in on some of these uh, exercises lately to make sure they at least try to manage uh, and avoid, hopefully, the, the catastrophic war. We can we can get by with some gray zone skirmishes and dust-ups. And even if we get tarnished a bit in our reputation because we have to slink away as we did in 2012 and, and let the Chinese move into Scarborough Shoal, um, you know, we can recover from that. So that's why there's that bias. But to your point, no, we don't do enough of the gray zone uh, exercising. Dove, uh, give us uh, your thoughts on that. And Michael, I'll be uh, to you in just a moment. Go ahead, Dove. Well, uh, Patrick's right. We don't do enough of that. However, I would point out that we, just as he said, we do some. And among those we do are those that have been done for the Air Force and particularly for the chief of staff of the Air Force. So CQ Brown is really aware of the kinds of gaps that Patrick talked about, but he's also aware of what we can do, what we cannot do, and what we should do. So that's another aspect of what he brings to the table that's so terribly important. Uh, I would uh, agree uh, with you on that, uh, Dove. Um, Michael, Tommy Tuberville has had uh, a hold uh, as I mentioned, defense uh, former defense secretaries have called on him to lift that hold. What does this look like? Because we may be naming a chief and doing a whole bunch of other moves, right? I mean, Cruiser Wilsbach, the commander of the Pacific Air Forces, is going to uh, you know come over to the Air, Air Combat Command uh, to relieve Grace uh, Kelly, uh, General Kelly, right? I mean, there, th this is this is musical chairs uh, time, uh, and obviously the Air Force Chief of Staff uh, job is going to have to be filled. Uh, as as well. So walk us through what's happening to actually clear this log jam or whether or not we're just going to whistle past this particular graveyard as well. Uh, nothing is happening to try and clear that log jam. And it's actually came up in a conversation with some friends on the Hill yesterday because this, this very topic they're concerned about when a new chairman of the Joint Chiefs and others are named, how we're going to get these cleared uh, through the Senate. Now, you know, Schumer can take these up individually and get them cleared. Uh, and that's a, a possible task for these extremely high-level positions, uh, but that does nothing to stop the backlog of now well over 200 uh, promotions that are being held up. At some point, uh, other Republicans are going to have to step in uh, to work with Tupperville to come to some kind of, of conclusion here, but that is not in sight right now. Just seeing as how Jim is not uh, with us, uh, Dom, I'm going to ask you to do uh, double uh, double duty and pitch in um, on the European part uh, of 
the conversation. Um, dr uh, drone attack, uh, or rather a foil drone attack uh, on uh, the uh, Senate chamber uh, in the Kremlin. Uh, obviously, Russia blaming the United States uh, for this. The United States saying we had nothing to do with this. It's not even abundantly clear the Ukrainians had anything uh, to do with this because they have a tendency of staying very quiet um, if they might be involved even, and they have completely denied having done this. And there is speculation that it might be the, the Russians. You have the Progosian fit uh, that uh, went viral on uh, social media where he's cursing out Shoigu and Gerasimov and demanding uh, more ammunition, which is why his poor guys are dying. His poor guys are dying because they're just people who've been conscripted really into the Wagner group or decided to join in bad tactics and marching across open fields and being taken out by Ukrainians. I mean, indeed, the Ukrainians have stayed in Bakhmut because they're like, this is a singular opportunity to kill a lot of Russians. Um, you know, walk, walk us through where we're going now, what this means. I mean, obviously, this incident comes as Russia prepares to uh, the victory day is a very big deal. This is the second victory day that Vladimir Putin has nothing to show for this uh, war uh, effectively. So he's doing what he always does, which is just sort of bomb Kiev, uh, Kherson, Kharkiv uh, and and uh, Odessa. Right. Where are we as we, you know, as the Russians sort of step up their attacks, we head into uh, the, um, you know, the fighting season when Ukraine starts its offensive. Well, let me start with the uh, drone attack. Um it is noteworthy that it didn't actually hit anything. And I think that it's quite possible, in fact, I think plausible, that what uh, the Russians did was take a leaf out of the Nazi book. If uh, you remember, the Nazis burned the Reichstag and blamed the communists for it. Uh, and so they come up with this scheme. Uh, it's perfectly within the Russian playbook certainly the uh, FSB playbook, and then they blame the United States and Ukraine. Now, why are they doing that now? Because of the potential counteroffensive that uh, everybody's preparing for. Uh, and so uh, you've got Prigozhin, about whom I wrote last week in The Hill. Uh, I still think that he, uh, he, together with some generals, and if not him, someone else, uh, could overthrow Putin if that uh, counteroffensive succeeds. And no one really knows how far the Ukrainians can get. On the, on the downside, maybe the Russians will stop them. Uh, they're digging in, as we know, particularly in the Crimea. Um, they're digging more trenches and all that sort of thing. But the fact of the matter is that Russian morale is terrible. And if the Ukrainians are, are able to move quickly, I think Russian soldiers are going to run. Uh, whether there are trenches or no trenches. And that will put tremendous pressure on Putin uh, to, uh, frankly, to get out. So, and the word is that Putin is becoming uh, increasingly paranoid. I think he's been paranoid for some time. I spoke to a president of one of the European countries who met with him some time back and said that there were all these machines and, and pure air purifier machines in Putin's uh, office. He doesn't sit near anybody. He's terrified that some disease will get him. So this may uh, have reinforced him uh, if indeed it wasn't the Russians. And if it was the Russians, well, he doesn't know which Russians, perhaps. So all in all, uh, this is a guy who's been boxed into a corner for some time and it's going to get worse. Uh, and remember, the United States keeps sending stuff to Ukraine, maybe not as quickly as, as uh, President Zelensky would like, but it's still going to Ukraine. And uh, the Secretary of Defense talked up the counteroffensive as well. So all in all, uh, I think we're going to see some very heavy fighting in the next few months. Uh, the Ukrainians are very, very good at uh, modifying what they get to make it relevant to what they're doing doing in the field. Uh, I think the Russians will get a bloody nose. The question to me is how bloody and how quickly. Uh, fascinating. Um, Michael, let me uh, give you an opportunity to gloat. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about whether Kevin McCarthy would be committed to the defense of Ukraine. Uh, and you said that uh, the speaker was uh, committed uh, to the defense of Ukraine. <laughs> well, uh, last year, as you recall, you know, Kevin McCarthy had said that he was not going to give you 
create a blank check. And it, that caused a lot of consternation. And you know, we talked about on the show where I, I said, look, Kevin McCarthy is a strong supporter of Ukraine. You got to read between the lines here. No one supports a blank check, but he's trying to message too to his far right uh, and, and strike a balance. And then after those comments were made, he called the national security leaders on the Hill to reaffirm his support for Ukraine. And again, I, I said that Zelensky's folks were giving him very poor advice, pressing McCarthy uh, to come to see for himself with the misunderstanding that he was not supportive of Ukraine and their aid, and um, which he made very clear uh, when his trip to Israel uh, earlier this week, where McCarthy said, you know, to a Russian reporter, you know, I vote for Ukraine aid. I support aid for Ukraine. I do not support what your country has done to Ukraine. I do not support your killing of the children either. And I think from one standpoint, you should pull out. And I don't agree. Uh, and I think that's right. I mean, he was very, very um unequivocal, very forceful in his uh, support for Ukraine and his feelings toward the Russian uh, incursion. Um, so you know, I think really we're, we're past the time where the Biden administration needs to send their Ukraine supplemental to the Hill. Uh, it's going to get lost in the noise of the debt ceiling uh, appropriations and CRs and you know, there's strong support. And I think that support will continue, uh, but we have to be conscious of the other fights on the Hill uh, the fights over spending and the legislative calendar. And Republicans have asked the administration for the Ukraine aid package. And I think they need to get it over there sooner rather than later. Uh, Patrick, uh, obviously another big Asia uh, Pacific uh, week, uh, Ferdinand Marcos in the United States, uh, very productive uh, set of visits. You mentioned uh, MQ-9s. That's a very big skip, uh, step in the Sky Guardian uh, going uh, to Taiwan. Give us kind of a roundup on what are the headlines we should be paying attention to or we may have missed over the past week. Well, the Philippines uh, was certainly one of the headlines on Asian uh, policy, and that's the fact that this was the first time the president of the Philippines has made a visit to the White House uh, in in more than 10 years. So it's been a while, and uh, President Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos uh, Jr. has uh, really tightened the U.S.-Philippine alliance in the both Biden and Marcos released a, a, the first ever U.S.-Philippine defense guidelines, sort of emulating a practice we've had with especially the Japanese over the decades, trying to uh, articulate both the commitment. Uh, and in this case, they were emphatic in the very first paragraph that an armed attack in the Pacific, including anywhere in the South China Sea on either their public vessels, aircraft or armed forces. And then they've got this sort of clause uh, sort of between dashes which includes their Coast Guards, uh, would invoke mutual defense commitments. Uh, and so that's important because that's essentially the sore point with Manila. Back in 2012, Scarborough Shoal, we told them to back off as the Chinese encroached, uh, even though it was in the Philippine EEZ. And um, that's when the Philippine Coast Guard had to be uh, you know, pulled out because the Chinese uh, PLA Navy uh, were coming over the horizon. And this time, uh, we're saying, no, even if you push around the Philippine Coast Guard, that invokes the the, the, the treaty. Now, what we do about that incursion, uh, still TBD, doesn't say in the guidelines, but the guidelines do commit to greater interoperability, greater modernization of the Philippines uh, military, greater cyber uh, capabilities. Um, and um, uh, it's also a very strong um, sort of commitment toward trilateralism, meaning, for instance, bringing the Japanese uh, to uh, exercise along with the U.S. and the Philippines in a trilateral form. All of those are now part of this alliance, and it's really come a long way. And this is after now the four additional enhanced defense cooperation agreement sites that uh, Marcos has signed off onto. Um, and three of those are, again, Taiwan facing on northern Luzon, uh, toward the Bashi Channel and Taiwan scenarios. The fourth is in uh, Palawan and, and overlooking the South China Sea. So they're all strategically important areas. Now, one caveat here is that Marcos did extract a commitment from the United States reportedly that uh, we would not be positioning um, forces for uh, to use in a Taiwan contingency. That seems to be a contradiction because everything that Marcos has done in recent weeks and months, uh, including public statements saying Philippines could not stay out of a Taiwan conflict in all probability. Um, nonetheless, he did have to draw the line publicly to show that the Chinese, that he's not trying to provoke them. Uh, he is trying to uh, have defense. It doesn't really matter. The Beijing uh, propaganda machine has been uh, thick on criticizing Marcos, right. criticizing the U.S. Uh, uh, alliance arrangements. 
a range of other things have happened, including, you say, the MQ-9 uh, Sea Guardians going finally to Taiwan. These were uh, sort of approved back in 2020. Uh, uh, and so it's taken a while to, like other arms sales to Taiwan, nonetheless, critically important when you think about even this week, part of the Chinese harassment of Taiwan has been not just the naval and air, but it's been specifically the drone circling around the island. And um, this will now give them uh, uh, that kind of... Uh, maritime domain awareness uh, capability. And uh, who knows, with poor crisis communications being uh, as they are with the Chinese, um, we could well end up with a, a drone crisis here in the coming weeks. Um, but it's a very good step for um, Taiwan. It's also good that the Japanese have decided this month to buy, this past month to buy uh, MQ-9 Sea Guardians as well. And the fact that they were exercised in Balakatan, um, you know, again, another good sign that our allies in this region are going to be have interoperability. Are going to have maritime domain awareness, um, and are going to be ready for uh, anything that comes. We hope um, a lot of other things happen in this but, uh, week. But very briefly, uh, I mentioned the Golden Week. Uh, Japanese officials here um, very serious about uh, their step up in terms of trying to maintain deterrence, and they're looking for, uh, especially uh, over the next couple of months, uh, relaxing the regulations that prevent arms sales to third parties. So they're looking at selling more planes and frigates, for instance, to Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, Philippines, uh, and they're going to get that legislation done in theory uh, over the next three or four months. So watch that space. Um, there was uh, in uh, in the UK, um, you know, speaking of, uh, speaking of China, um, the coronation crasher uh, of, of that uh, coronation uh, ceremony is gonna be Vice President Han Zhang, um, who is the man who led China's repudiation of the Sino-British Joint Declaration Treaty of 1984 that governed the uh, transfer of Hong Kong and that, in theory, had bought Hong Kong 50 years thereafter of strategic autonomy. Obviously, that went away. And here's the man who crushed that uh, agreement coming as the senior representative of China. So it's a real slap in the face uh, at the UK. Um India's foreign minister, Jai Shankar, is uh, hosting uh, Lavrov and um, Chen Gong, his uh, Russian and Chinese counterparts, among others, because Chi India is hosting the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting in Goa. Um, and it's interesting uh, diplomacy that's going on there. He's making uh, defense production deals with, with Russia. Um, there's really no alternative. They're trying to create joint ventures so that India can make more of this defense production in India rather than bring it in from Russia. Um, and the Chinese are looking at uh, trying to make some points here with India uh, in the SEO uh, at a time when India has been reluctant to criticize Russia's war in Ukraine. Thanks very much for Patrick. Dove, uh, just uh, very briefly, you've got a great piece out uh, in uh, The Hill. Bye bye, BB. How Ben Gavir could topple the Netanyahu government. Uh, give us a quick take on that. And I want to get very quickly uh, your thoughts on uh, the possible Armenia-Azerbaijan uh, uh, deal, and what do you think that means? Uh, go ahead on the Ben Gavir thing. Well, Ben Gavir is the Minister for National Security, but he's been uh, kept out of cabinet meetings. Uh, and uh, this week, after the uh, Hamas uh, fired 104 rockets, mostly at southern Israel, he and his leadership, uh, his party leadership, decamped to Steyrot, which is kind of the city that always seems to be hit and said he would not vote uh, with the government that day uh, on anything because he feels the government's response to Hamas was too weak. And oh, by the way, why am I not in the security cabinet meetings? Uh, and basically he's he's threatened uh, Netanyahu uh, and said, OK, you don't like me, fire me. I dare you. And Netanyahu's people and he himself have said, well, we don't need them. And he comes back and says, OK, fire me. In other words, he is blackmailing it's openly blackmailing Netanyahu that unless uh, he goes ahead with all of uh, Ben Gvir's right wing uh, dreams uh, and he's angry about everything. For example, he uh, tried to prevent Palestinian prisoners from using cell phones. Netanyahu went behind his back and said, it's OK. He's angry. He wants to crush anything. And he's been open about it. Ex anything that's not extreme right wing, hard right. 
he is against. And so the question then becomes, what will Netanyahu ultimately do? Is he going to give in to this guy? For instance, not compromise on a Supreme Court deal because Ben Gvir wants no compromise. And if he gives in to him, what does that do to the, to the state of Israel as a democracy and to the chaos that's been still ongoing on the streets? Or does Netanyahu give in and compromise and perhaps lose his prime ministership and perhaps face uh, conviction and jail for the charges against him? It'll be very interesting to see whether Netanyahu at some point puts country above himself. So far, he hasn't. Uh, and let me take you to the Armenian Azerbaijan uh, peace deal. Armenia lost uh, the war uh, against uh, Azerbaijan uh, with uh, extraordinary help from uh, Turkey and Israel. Um, it looks like the plan is uh, to recognize the Soviet borders of Armenia and basically leave, uh, I mean, basically cut loose Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and there are concerns, obviously, that that's a very problematic move to be making. Uh, but he's doing that, I think, because uh, the southern part of Armenia was uh, going to be cut off uh, by uh, Azerbaijan and by uh, Turkey. Um, what's this deal sort of mean? Because a lot of people are left scratching their heads uh, at uh, the end of it. And for some, it is an existential uh, issue uh, for the future of an independent Armenia. Well, uh, compromise stinks. Nobody likes compromise. And uh, you, when you compromise, you give something away. He's giving away something over which, uh, the president of Armenia, that is, uh, something over which Armenia has fought not only in post-Soviet times, but in pre-Soviet times. Uh, and so uh, obviously this is, is shocking uh, to a lot of uh, observers, uh, to the, the Armenian diaspora uh, in particular, and of course the folks living in Nagorno-Karabakh. But if given the way the Russians have behaved and given that Turkey has absolutely no compunction about uh, what Armenia thinks, feels, or, or is entitled to, uh, it may well be that he's simply cutting his losses. Very, very tough decision. I'd hate to be in his shoes right now. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Terrific conversation. Uh, as always, hope uh, you all have uh, a great day, a great weekend, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. And a special thank you to our audience and to Bill for their generous sponsorship that makes this podcast possible. We'll see you again on Sunday for the Business Roundtable. Thanks very much and have a great weekend.